All right, we'll be continuing our study in Acts now. In the previous chapters, we'll be in chapter 13 to 14 tonight, but in the previous chapters it showed uh, how God was changing the heart of the church to reach out to the Gentiles a little more. Peter had his vision of the sheet coming down from heaven with all the unclean animals, and God explained that to him, and he went and witnessed to Cornelius and his family, and it was kind of a big deal in their church there. And when Peter got back, he got interrogated by the other Jews in the church. But uh, when they found out that God had decided to save them and that they received the Holy Spirit as proof, they couldn't argue with that. And uh, we saw also that um, a few disciples went up to Antioch and spread the gospel. And a lot of people got saved there. And then Barnabas went up there and he got uh, Paul and took him there too. And they encouraged the believers there and discipled them for a whole year there. And it was kind of a seaport, kind of a big hub of a city. And we also saw Herod persecuting the church by killing James and arresting Peter. But God set Peter free. So since it's been a long time since we met, that's kind of a rundown of where we were last time. So to start in uh, chapter 12, verse 25, the end of chapter 12 there, it says... And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So another thing Barnabas and Saul did in the last chapter was they took provisions down to Judea because of a famine. And it was cool because it showed the maturity of the group of believers in Antioch. You know, they've only been saved a year, and they were being discipled, and uh, some prophets came and prophesied that there would be a famine in the area, and so they got together supplies and sent them to Judea. So it's cool to see them maturing there and their willingness to respond to God's direction and to serve by giving to their brothers in need. The gospel they received changed their lives. So after Barnabas and Saul had delivered those provisions, they headed back and they brought Mark with them this time. So they brought along a guy kind of stowed away as they returned back to Antioch. So now we're starting in chapter 13 here, and it says, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So there's some interesting details here with the way that Barnabas and Saul were called. First, it says that they were ministering to God and fasting when the Spirit spoke to them. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But it also says that they were called according to God's plan. We can't really decide our own calling. We can't say, oh, I'm going to be a pastor or I'm going to be a missionary or I'm going to be a janitor, you know. You can't decide your own calling. It's what God calls you to do. And uh, we've looked at in the past with the other uh, disciples how their callings were each important no matter what they were called to. Like Stephen, the first martyr there, he was just called to wait on tables in the beginning. So we don't decide what we're called to. We decide if we will seek for and submit to what God has called us, us to do. So our choice isn't what, we're, what we do, but if we're going to submit to what God wants us to do. And the third thing in verse 3 there, 
It makes it sound like they fasted and prayed a second time after receiving God's call. And so, uh, seeking God is a continuous daily thing. It doesn't end once you receive your calling or once you get an answer to prayer you're looking for. You have to keep seeking God. It's a relationship. So to talk about uh, seeking God for a minute here, there was some things that came to mind and it said... uh, this was that God can do whatever he wants to, and he does things in mysterious ways a lot. But in general, if you want to hear from God, you should be listening. And if you want to see God, you should be looking. And James 4.8 says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And that's the general rule there. It's like, if you want to hear from God, you should be drawing near to God yourself. And uh, I want to look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 through 11. It's cool to keep going back to the Gospels where we go through the book of Acts and see them fulfilling the things that Jesus taught them to do. So in Matthew 7, verse 7, it says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And so, uh, if we ask God to reveal himself to us, why would he not? Because he wants to give us those good things. It's not like God's hiding himself from us. He wants us to fellowship with him. But the ball is in our court, usually. And uh, we have to decide to spend that time with him. And for me, a lot of times, I know that I get uh, caught up in the cares of this world and can get distant from God. And then he reminds me how much I need him because all of a sudden a trial will come up and I'll I'll realize how weak I am on my own and uh, how hard it is to do anything apart from God. And so it's not like God won't reach out to us, even if we are turning our back on him or getting distant from him. And you remember, Saul wasn't fasting and ministering to God the first time he was called when he was on, his way, on, the, way, on the way to Damascus there. God revealed himself to him there in a powerful way, and he was uh, persecuting Jesus, really. And so, uh, but that's not what we need to do, though. We don't need to try to turn against God if we want to hear from him. We need to turn toward him and... That's when true fellowship is going to happen is when you're seeking God because God's always seeking us, but it's a shallow, one-way relationship if we aren't seeking him in return. And uh, I quoted that verse from James 4 there, and I kind of wanted to read that section of verses. So James 4, 4 through 10. I was just going to use that one little verse, that nice encouraging, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But when I was looking for it, I kind of got convicted by those other verses around it. So James chapter 4, verse 4 says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And so, uh, there's that encouraging verse that if you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. But those other verses around it can kind of be convicting. And it says there, let me see my notes here for a second. So I was really convicted when it got to that part where it said, friendship with the world is enmity with God. And so when you become a Christian and experience what a relationship with God is like, you kind of look back at the relationship you had with the world and you kind of think, well, what did I ever see in that person, you know? It's like, why was I ever friends with that? Because you see how good God is and how cruel the world was to you. And so it's kind of funny that we could return to that and be caught up in the world again. And verse 4 sounds really in your face there. It's calling, saying adulterers and adulteresses. But it's verse 5 that really shows the heart of God behind it. Because it says... He says that God is jealous for us. Or do you not know, or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? So God is jealous for us, and it's a righteous jealousy because uh, he technically bought us when, he, uh, when his son Jesus died on the cross to make us his sons and daughters. And so we technically belong to God, and when we go back to the world, he's has that righteous jealousy for us. He's like, that's mine, I paid for that. And he knows how cruel the world is and how it's not going to do us any good to be hanging out with the world again. And so he is literally worthy of our adoration and he's worthy of all our time and energy. And that's why he gets jealous for us. And the answer is simply to just repent and draw near to him again. And what's going to happen if we draw near to God? He will draw near to us. So it's a promise. And if we run away from God, it's not like God's running away from us too. But it's like if you repent and turn around, you kind of go, whoa, you're right there, God. It's kind of like he, if you're running away from him, it's like he follows you. And as soon as you turn around, he's right there to take you back again. Right back into his arms. So, uh, sorry for that little sidetrack there, but those are all things that kind of came up when I was looking at that verse there. So they were called... Saul and Barnabas were called, and they fasted and prayed before leaving, and they laid hands on them and sent them away. And that's always good when you're in that missionary setting. It's good to have people send you away and to pray, be praying for you. It's good to have someone who's going to hold you accountable and who you can be uh, encouraging yourself by sending word back to them and stuff. So back on to verse 4 now it says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. So they set out on their journey. They started on the port city, so they didn't have to go very far to get a boat. And they traveled on foot straight through the island of Cyprus. And they still have that John Mark guy with them, who they picked up in Judea. And uh, we'll see... That, that might, that's going to cause an argument between Paul and Barnabas later on there. But uh, things are starting, starting off good on their journey. Verse 6 now says, 
Now when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So you can kind of imagine the excitement Saul and Barnabas have. They just started their journey, and uh, they just received their call from God. And when they hear this political man wants to come and hear the gospel, they must have been really excited and seen it as an open door from the Lord. And as soon as they get there, here comes the sorcerer. And he's someone who wants to, here's someone, the proconsul who wants to hear the gospel, and the sorcerer is standing in the way and trying to keep him from it. And it can be frustrating and discouraging when you come across opposition in the ministry that uh, God's called you to, and in general life there. The enemy wants us to give up, but we have to remember how important the work God has called us to is. And uh, I've seen firsthand when you try to witness to someone and the devil tries to pull them away. When we went on that mission trip to Romania earlier this year, there was a, a certain day with like really spiritual, heavy spiritual warfare. And uh, it seemed like every person we talked to either got a phone call or had a friend pulling them away. And one guy, his friend even slapped him in the face to try and get him to quit listening to us. And so the devil is determined to keep people from coming to Christ. So on to verse 9 now it says, Then Saul, who also was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight way of the Lord? And so Paul calls him out here. He has the boldness of the Holy Spirit in him. And he calls this guy out on what he's doing. The name Elymas went by was Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus. And uh, it was kind of, Jesus was kind of a common name back then, but it sounds like he kind of started going by that to cause confusion. You know, as they were trying to preach the gospel, he probably was saying, oh yeah, that's my dad, or something like that, you know, because he was trying to distract the proconsul there. But Paul calls him out on his fraud, because he is a lot more like the son of the devil than the son of Jesus. And his sorcery was a fraud. The little tricks he could do were a ripoff. God is the one who does miracles. And another thing Paul accuses him of was perverting the straight ways of the Lord. And that's a big characteristic of the devil. He likes to take the truth and then twist it to just throw people off and get them confused. And he's been using that trick since the Garden of Eden. So the enemy tries to make everything confusing, but the gospel is simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. So on to verse 11 now it says, And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So it's interesting that at the word of Paul, Elymas was struck with blindness when he stood against God. And that's interesting because that's Paul's testimony right there. Paul was standing against God on the road to Damascus and God, Jesus struck him with blindness until he sought him. 
And it makes me wonder if maybe Paul thought, well, it worked for me. Maybe it'll bring this guy to salvation too. But uh, it does say that he was blind for a time, so it makes it sound like it was only temporary. But whatever the case, this guy's reputation as a sorcerer must have been ruined if the sorcerer was blinded by the gospel. And the power of God prevailed in the situation, so the devil couldn't stop another person from coming to Christ. And the very traps of our enemies that our enemies try to use against us end up being used against them. And, but I think the coolest part of this, though, is that uh, the pro-counsel here, it says he was a very intelligent man, but it says that uh, he was astonished. And it wasn't about the miracle. It says he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And so he saw the miracle as a byproduct of the power of God's salvation. He saw that that was the real truth, that that was the real important thing, was the salvation that uh, Paul and Barnabas were bringing. And it said that he chose to believe. So I think that's the coolest part right there. So their missionary journey is starting off good here. In verse 13 it says, Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. So John's already leaving. Maybe the thing with the sorcerer kind of freaked him out, or maybe he had a good excuse for leaving, but uh, we'll find, see later that that causes a disagreement with Paul and Barnabas when he tries to join the group again. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Poseidon and when, went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after reading the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So Paul and Barnabas' usual routine when they came into a city was to go to the synagogue and they'd be respectful there and kind of wait their turn to speak and they'd preach the gospel to the Jews when they had the opportunity. But uh, they were being uh, respectful so that the people would listen. And that's kind of an important thing, I think. I've seen a few, few people over the years who have used the gospel as an excuse to be obnoxious or rude. You know, they'll be in people's faces, and there's those people the news puts on, the, uh, the people that the news talks about who hit people in the heads with the Bible and stuff. And uh, it's important that uh, we follow Christ's example and be subtle as uh, doves and as wise as serpents. Because God wants us to serve one another in love. And uh, it doesn't mean you can't correct someone or confront them, but it needs to be done in love. So it's important that we present the gospel of grace with grace. But in verse 17 now, uh, we see Paul sharing the gospel and it says, The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed to their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterwards, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave his testimony gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, 
who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up from Israel a Savior, Jesus. And so uh, Paul starts with the history of Israel. He reminds them of their governmental transitions. They never, that never really worked out. When God first chose the nation of Israel, he was their leader, but they didn't submit to God. And so a lot of them were punished and perished in the wilderness because they were so rebellious. And then they had judges and kings, but they were only human and they were imperfect leaders. And then uh, David came along and he was a man after God's own heart, but he still wasn't perfect. And uh, after everyone else fell short, God showed the promise that the Messiah would come. And that's where Paul is bringing in the gospel here, that Jesus is that perfect uh, leader who's going to finish what the others couldn't finish. So in verse 24 it says, After John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandal of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers." And so the gospel is preached here, and it's preached so much through the book of Acts. Anytime that one of the apostles share the gospel, pretty much, it shares it word for word what they said, and that's pretty awesome. And uh, now he's going to go into some specific prophecies that Jesus fulfilled here. In verse 33 he says, God has fulfilled this for us, for us their children, and that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus. I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. And so uh, Jesus is the son of God. He has the firstborn inheritance rights. Back then the firstborn son would get everything. And uh, he would divide it up amongst his brothers later. But uh, the prophecies that are fulfilled here and these promises that uh, Jesus uh, kept, they apply to us too in some uh, certain amount here. So Jesus has the inheritance rights and he's the only one who's worthy, but he shares his blessings with us. And it says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus is the son of God, but he shares his inheritance with us. And allows us to be called God's children as well because he uh, spilt his blood on the cross and allowed God to adopt us that way. And he also says, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. And we know that Jesus was raised from the dead and it's the first fruits of a resurrection. And because he was raised, we know that we'll be raised back to life as well. So verse 36 now, he continues. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. 
But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So the forgiveness of Jesus is so complete, he justifies us from all things. It's just as if we never sinned. That's the phrase that goes with that word justification to help us remember what it means. And the devil will try to condemn us and remind us of all the sins we committed. But the truth is that God has wiped those things away. And uh, that's the beautiful uh, gift of salvation here that Paul's sharing is that everything wrong they've ever done will be wiped away if they ask Jesus to forgive them. It continues in verse 40, though. It says, Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which will you, you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. So Paul ends his gospel presentation with a biblical warning that they should take these things to heart. And so that must have given them something to think about if they didn't want to accept Jesus at that time. And it continues in verse 42 now and says, So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. So it must have been encouraging for them to see some of the fruit of the gospel. There were many who responded to the message, and there were so many more who wanted to hear the gospel the next week. So that was another encouraging thing on their missionary journey here. And in verse 44, it went on, On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles for so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And so it's cool that almost the whole city showed up. It's an amazing opportunity to share the gospel with an entire city. But uh, what is the reaction of the Jews, though? They're envious. And uh, it's not enough that they reject God's salvation. They want to bring others to hell with them. And that's another trait of the devil there. I guess misery loves company, like that old saying is. So Paul and Barnabas again find themselves being opposed while trying to share the gospel. And uh, it's not God who rejected these Jews, but they rejected themselves by not accepting God's salvation. Paul was clear to tell them that. So on to verse 48 now it says, Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So these, gentle, these Gentiles had an appointment with eternal life. If we're in Christ, then at some point in time, our names were written in the Lamb's book of life. And uh, I don't know if that's some angel's job or if God himself writes that, but uh, it's a pretty cool thought. And if we look at Luke chapter 10, verse 17 through 20, this is when Jesus sent out his disciples and uh, on their own little missionary journeys in groups of two, and then they came back and reported to him. So 
So Luke chapter 10, verse 17. It says, Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And that's pretty uh, kind of funny there what Jesus is telling them, you know. They come back all excited that the demons are subject to them. And uh, Jesus kind of builds it up there. He's saying, hey, if you think that's cool, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And then he told them that they can even trample on serpents and scorpions. And they have power over, over the enemy. So it's kind of like building up like the disciples must have thought that uh, he was just telling them war stories or something. But he ends by saying that all these things, though, aren't important. And you shouldn't rejoice in them. The important thing is that your name is written in heaven. That's the really important thing that you should be rejoicing over. That's something we can rejoice in every day. And it's interesting because the problem with the Jews was that they were envious. You know, they wanted something that wasn't theirs. And that's a fruit of the flesh. I think it talks about that in Galatians or something. You know, it talks about envy being one of the fruits of the flesh. But um, the Bible tells us to be content and if we look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 here, I think we looked at this before in Acts, but it's such a good one to keep going back to. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 through 10 says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And so uh, if our eternal salvation is secured, then we can truly be content. You know, if you make a list of the things that you could complain about, or the things that you want, or the things that worry you, they would all kind of funnel down into one thing, and that would be death. You know, like, what are you afraid of? Well, what if I lose my job? Okay, what's wrong if you lose your job? Well, what if I get kicked out of my house and I'm homeless? Well, what if you're homeless? Well, what if I starve or die from the elements? Okay, so it kind of all, no matter what your situation is, it would kind of always funnel down to death would be the biggest problem you could have. But it's not our problem. We can just cross that out and write life there instead, you know. And so if our biggest problem is taken care of, there's really nothing else to worry about or to be concerned about. So we can truly be content because our names are written in heaven. Because even if we lost everything, but we still had our eternal salvation, it would be like we lost nothing at all. It's like a billionaire losing a penny. You can't even compare it. That's how much greater heaven is than anything we can lose in this life. And Romans chapter 8 verse 18 says, I know you guys have all heard this one before, but Romans chapter 8 verse 18. This is later on Paul says, 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And it's kind of that uh, picture with the billionaire again, you know. If he loses a penny, it doesn't even matter. And uh, the sufferings of this time that we have, they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that we shall receive. So, um, back to the verse 49 now. Uh, We were talking there about the Gentiles being so glad in their salvation and that they had been appointed to eternal life. So back to verse 49 it says, And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region, but the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women of the, and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So persecution pushed them out of the city this time. They had persecution before, but now it's expelled them out of the city. But they did what Jesus taught them to do, and they just shook the dust off their feet and kept moving on. And so the disciples that were made in that city weren't left on their own. They were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit, it said in verse 52 there. So they're in good hands. In chapter 14 now it continues. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews, and so spoke that a great multitude both of the Jews and of the Greeks believed But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So they experienced another persecution of the Jews, but this time they stayed for a long time instead of shaking the dust off their feet. And that's because they were being sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. So there's not really a good uh, kind of a chart or a code where you can say, well, if this happens, do this. In any situation, we need to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so this time they stick it out through the persecution and they continue being a witness of God. And it says, uh, God told them to stay there as a witness of his grace. Matthew 5:45 says that God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Because that's how gracious he is. And he says that he even was doing miracles to help these people believe. So God was doing everything he could to give them a chance to repent. Down to verse 4 now it says, But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and it fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. So persecution pushes them on to the next region again, but they keep spreading the gospel. In verse 8 now it says, And in Lystra a certain man with strength, without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking, Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker, 
Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. So a miracle takes a strange turn here. The people think that they're gods because a crippled man was healed. And uh, they start getting the sacrifices ready and everything. So this is the first time that's ever happened for them. But uh, it's kind of interesting, too, that they thought Barnabas was Zeus and Paul was Hermes. Because uh, in their culture, I guess, the person in charge wouldn't do his own talking. He'd have his messenger go do the talking for him. So since Barnabas was standing there and Paul was speaking, uh, they thought that uh, Barnabas was Zeus and Paul was Hermes. So they bring out all these sacrifices ready to sacrifice for him. Uh, verse 14 says, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitudes, crying out, and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good. He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, with these sayings they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. So it would have been wrong for the apostles to accept this worship. So they tore their clothes, and that was a sign of grieving. And uh, they gave them a real quick version of the gospel to try and get them to stop their sacrifices. And uh, they shared the gospel by addressing their idol worship. So it's pretty amazing that they would think of it that fast. You know, it must have been the Spirit giving Paul the words to say. But at the same time, he's stopping the sacrifices and telling them why it's wrong to sacrifice and sharing the gospel with them. The gospel he shared was, he, he told them why worship statues when you can worship the all-powerful and loving God. That's basically what he said. And uh, he explained that God was loving because even though these people don't follow him, he gives them rain and food and gladness. These are things that they thought they would have to sacrifice to their idols in order to get. But Paul is telling them that God's so gracious that even though you're worshiping these idols and you think it's from their hands, he's still giving it to you. And uh, it goes back to that verse we just read from Matthew 5 where God causes his rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. So that's how gracious God is. And uh, he still blesses them even though they're thanking their statues for it. So that's the real quick gospel Paul shared with them. In verse 19 it says, Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. So you can't really put your trust in people. One minute they're literally worshiping them, and the next minute they stoned him. In uh, John chapter 2, verse uh, 23 through 25, it says... Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And so at the start of Jesus' ministry, he did some miracles and all these people were saying, like, ooing and aahing at his miracles, but 
Jesus knew not to really trust them or to commit himself to them. He knew that just a few years at the exact same feast they would be crucifying him. He knew it was in their hearts. And so um, we really shouldn't expect that much from people, as sad as that sounds. But uh, when you really don't expect anything from people, it's a lot easier to give yourself to them more and to uh, serve them, in my experience anyways. You know, if you expect something back from them, you do it kind of intending to get back yourself. And then when you don't get back, you get frustrated with them. But if you don't expect anything and you still serve them, then uh, you're kind of surprised if they do repay you back or even say thank you. And uh, that's why we shouldn't bother trying to be people pleasers. We should just focus on pleasing God. So back in Acts chapter 14, verse 21, it says, uh, after Paul escaped, having been stoned and left for dead, in verse 21 it says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. And so, after being stoned, they went on to the next place, and then they retraced their steps pretty much exactly to go back home so that they could encourage all the people who did believe and give their hearts to God. And it's kind of a funny encouragement there. You know, they're telling them, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And Paul looks, must look pretty rough right now. You know, he was stoned. He must have a lot of swelling and bruises and bleeding wounds. And he's, you know, he must have said to them, see this? This is what you have to look forward to. <laughs> They're coming for you next. But uh, though Paul and Barnabas were encouraging the people, saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. And it goes back to it all being worth it because our names are written in the book of life. And... Uh, these are the sufferings that Paul would later say aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. It's these kind of sufferings when people stone you and think you're dead. So on to verse 23 now it says, So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so it kind of comes full circle here. We, we uh, started tonight looking at Paul and Barnabas they were fasting and praying and being called. And now there's this new church here that, they, uh, that got saved and that are believing and continuing. And now they're fasting and praying and they're appointing elders to this new church. So it's cool to see it go in full circle. It's awesome to see the way God works it all out. On to verse 25 it says, Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commanded, commended by the, to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So they got back home and they shared all the things God did with them. And uh, that's part of the missionary journey is to share the things that God does with those who supported you in prayer and uh, who sent you out. And so they stayed in Antioch a long time then, it says. It kind of seems like Antioch is their home base for Paul and Barnabas there. And they were faithful in what God had called them to do. And we got to see all the fruit from that. There were so many groups that got saved. There was, they got to preach to whole cities. 
And it was all because they were faithful to do what God had called them to do. And it makes me want to fast and pray and make sure I'm doing what God has called me to do. And uh, to look at the way it all works out in the end. How God works everything out with his marvelous plans. And the book of Acts is only half over. And Paul is going to suffer so many more things, as we'll see. But uh, it's all worth it because our salvation is eternal. And we get to share that with people. So that's the end of the study tonight. I'll go ahead and pray and then we can have some more uh, time of worship. Lord God, thank you for this time, Lord. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for uh, the witness and testimonies that are in it, Lord. The truths, the promises, Lord God. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to grab a hold of these things and to keep our eyes on you. Help us, Lord, not to be friends of the world, but to seek you fervently, Lord God. And I pray that you would make our callings sure, Lord God, and let us know for sure what we're called to do so that we can serve you in that faithfully, Lord God. And uh, help us throughout this week now, Lord, to stay close to you, Lord Jesus, and to be walking in your ways and walking in the Spirit. And I thank you for all that you do. In your name I pray. Amen. Have a great week with the Lord.